Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello, hello. Welcome. Shalom. Yeah, we have a special week today. We're uh, This week we're doing Isaiah. I am so thrilled to be able to start this book. Yeah. So our three questions, which we've been consistently doing is, is, you know, how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? Check, check, check. Yeah. Isaiah's so simple. With it. Yeah, yeah. This is so great. Anytime you get to open up the Lord's favorite book, you feel pretty good about reading it. You know, when I think about my favorite books and what I love about them, when the Lord says in Third Nephi, you know, great are the words of Isaiah. And of all the prophets in the New Testament, did you know the Lord quoted Isaiah more? I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Than anybody else. Psalms has a couple, has a few more, but those aren't necessarily they're One just, person, yeah. they're not, the Lord's not quoting him necessarily. Sometimes he does, but he quotes Isaiah as the most quoted prophet. So that's pretty terrific that we get to jump in here. And another reason why it's going to be able to be easy is because I feel like not only does the Book of Mormon often quote about a third of Isaiah, but it also gives commentary on it. Mm. It's sort of like when the Lord um, told parables and then his disciples would say, hey, can you explain that, please? <laughs> you know, now that we're alone, can, can we hear, hear the real meaning? And Isaiah is interpreted many times in the Book of Mormon, which is just such a blessing. So who, who was Isaiah? Why, why is he so okay, important? Okay, let's, let's get into that history. Um, so we were told some exact dates, which is really helpful. He, he's there for at least four kings, if not five. And in chapter six, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Okay. So we are in Judea. We're in the lower, in the lower kingdom, in the um, southern kingdoms. In um, about 742 is the year of Uzziah. So let's estimate, and people assume that he was born about 775 BC. And he, he is a prophet for at least 40 years as he goes through these different kings. And so I feel like um, he's so well-known because of his words, but he's also well-known in his time because of his political position. And because of that position, most people assume that he was wealthy. We know he's well-educated. You know, his Hebrew is the best in the Old Testament. In fact, he's such a gifted poet. Uh, I've heard it described that Isaiah is to Hebrew as William Shakespeare is to English. Yeah, and that seems to fit. Yeah, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And I just love it. You know, you read it three and four times and you can keep getting more and more. You know, it's just a book you want to go back to so many times. I just hope that no one gives up the um, until they understand some of his symbols and allegories. But in addition to being wealthy, well-educated from Jerusalem, he's socially connected. You know, he's, and, and then he's, some of the kings don't listen to him. Ahaz isn't really that interested in him, you know, chapters. Um, anyway, we'll get to those later. But I feel like um, Hezekiah really listens. He, he's not just an advisor for that king. He brings him into the palace and he lives in the palace with him and he wants him in his beck and call. Mm. You know, it, it's, it, I just love the fact that Uzziah, I mean, excuse me, King Hezekiah almost runs the war through the direction of Isaiah. But Isaiah bridges this time when the northern tribes are taken and Assyria attacks the southern tribes and they are spared. Because Hezekiah follows Isaiah. 
So it's a very exciting time. He was probably, um, I don't know, a teenager or something during the time of Jonah, when Jonah's teaching in the north, when Jonah's being swallowed by the whale and right. and teaching to the um, Assyrians. Uh, he possibly overlapped with Joel and Micah. They were um, also prophets to the south, which is where he was. Um, and traditionally, we don't have this in scripture, but the the record that Isaiah was killed as a martyr. Manasseh was a horrifically terrible king after Hezekiah, and he um, put Isaiah in a hollowed-out log and sawed him. And they say with a wooden saw, but uh, that's just maybe a translation. I don't know. Anyway, just horrific uh, uh, death um, by our great um, prophesier of the Messiah. I feel if... um, one reason why he's so beloved to the Book of Mormon is because, and Nephi is because he saw the Lord. Nephi saw the Lord. So Nephi, I think, uses Isaiah as a second witness who saw the Lord. Hmm. And then Jacob as the third witness who saw the Lord, his little brother. I think that's how he is compiling his plates. But I also feel like Nephi uses him so much because Isaiah is just, you know, 100, 150 years before Nephi, probably sort of like I feel about Joseph Smith. Right. Nephi felt about Isaiah. And this is why Nephi says, I, I understand Isaiah. You know, I, I lived during some of this time. I get it. But the rest of you, I, I know it's going to be hard for you to understand it. And so I'm really grateful that Nephi says, I, I get that you don't get it. So I'm going to give you some keys. You know, <laughs> so that's a, such a blessing to have the Book of Mormon tell us. So in 2 Nephi 25, he says, Isaiah is hard to understand. And then he says, quote, for they know not concerning the manner of prophesying among the Jews. And um, at least for his people. And so he he often explains it, which right. is just terrific. Um, but then in verse four of that same chapter, Second Nephi 25, the words of Isaiah are plain unto all those that are filled with the spirit of prophecy. And I always try to remember to pray sincerely before my scripture study, but sometimes I just grab the scriptures and just start reading, you know, get it done, or I'm going to bed, oops, got to do this quickly, you know, um, rather than having a sincere, thoughtful, seeking, searching prayer ahead of time. But if we want the spirit of prophecy to be able to understand Isaiah, you know, it's almost like asking for the gift of tongues in some places, you know, we've got to, we've got to pray for that. And then in verse six, it talks about the regions round around Jerusalem. And I feel like he's talking about not just um, the geography and the political climate. He's talking about Jerusalem as the center place with the temple, because so much of Isaiah is temple-centered. In fact, I, I found this wonderful quote by um, Margaret Barker. The temple and its rituals were at the center of Isaiah's world. So it's not just Isaiah. His whole world is, is focused and centered on that. These are the southern tribes. They are the ones who are, are keeping the temple. So in addition to that, um, the Lord comes and the Lord tells, quote, several Isaiah chapters and then says in 3 Nephi 23, 31 and verse 3, search these things diligently for great are the words of Isaiah and all things that he spake have been and shall be according to his words. So I'm not surprised that Nephi quotes him, but when the Lord quotes him, I realize, okay, the Lord wanted these people to understand how he fulfilled Isaiah, and he also wanted it to be recorded for our day and age. I feel right. like 
Isaiah is such a messianic text that the first coming and the second coming are all blended together. And for us, it's pretty easy because we can see, oh, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. We know that is the first coming. And of course, the word virgin there is is young girl. But in that day and age, a young girl was to be a virgin. So it, the words were synonymous. They were used interchangeably. Um, and then the things that haven't happened, we say, okay, that's going to come to pass. You know, it's just a little bit easier for us to separate them out because we can we have the blessing of history. We're we're blessed to be born now. Um, any any other thoughts that you do? I guess one thing I do is there's no chapter breaks, so I I try not to stop at the end of a chapter. I stop at the end of the storyline yeah. because so many of them the Keep chapters going. are in the wrong place. Yeah, I just yeah. Wanted, yeah. what uh, else do you do? Isaiah. To help? Well, Isaiah to me is, is a is such a break from the rest of the prophets and 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 frankly how the Old Testament reads. Yes. You know, it's I can um, think of some of the great prophets in you know stories of these kings and so on. Uh, they're wonderful. We've been studying them all year, but when you read Isaiah, it's completely different, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, mm-hmm. Shakespeare. Well, and you even feel different in the Book of Mormon, right? You know, you're reading along, and then all of a sudden, you get this poetry, and you think, okay, I got to stop and sit down and take my time here. Yeah, I got to get out a pencil. I got to get a paper, and I also feel like I need a map. Yeah, and I always keep my chart handy that has. Um, you can get them online or anything, you know, just these charts of who are the kings, who are the neighboring rulers. So when we talk about Raisin, I know what country he's the king of. And I can just look over at my little chart. Okay, I'm in 720 BC. Zip. There he yeah. is. You know, so that that helps for me to have a little bit of map and historical um, kings and things like that from the area. But most of all, it's I want to focus today on what our purpose is here to look for Christ in his first coming in his second coming. And the book of Mormon is such a gift on this. Just. All right. Treasure. So this week we'll spend a lot more time in the scriptures because of the references back and forth. Yeah. 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 Um, and even though we're just going to be focusing on the first few chapters today, the, the whole book scholars like to divide into four sections the first, of course, is the throne of God, how he's going to allow Israel to be cut down, but that this promised branch is going to come back and um, new Emmanuel is coming, that there's going to also be, though, a new Jerusalem. So always the first and second coming are always sort of combined. And then the next sections, uh, chapter 13 to 27, the fall of Babylon and the surrounding nations and how nothing but the lords are going to survive and only the new Jerusalem will actually be a, a enduring Location, of course, that even hasn't arrived yet. And the next section they divide up is 28 to 39. And that's when Jerusalem um, won't be saved by its political alliances, but only be saved by God. And that they are going to go to have to into exile, but they will be able to return again and build a new Jerusalem. I mean, we just keep having the same themes. And then finally, the last 26 chapters, 40 to 66 chapters 46 is this great message of hope through the suffering servant. And then again, the future new Jerusalem. I really feel like if, if we want to see the signs of the time, if we want to understand the second coming, what's going to be happening, this is the book for us to be yeah. studying. Yeah, I agree. It's just fabulous. Okay. What did you love let's, about chapter one? Do you want to dive into the text? Yeah, let's dive into it. So we're told exactly here we are that yeah. he's having these visions and it's in the days of Uzziah. 
a Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So there's the four kings that he lives under that he's working with. But I, but we know Hezekiah does not kill him. And it's the history that says it's the next king mm. who he actually was still alive for that, that had him killed. So but that's in verse so one. So just as a refresher, like politically, what's going on right now? So these are the southern tribes. The northern tribes have... Are, are confronting Assyria, right. and it's the first major takeover. So we're talking, what is this, 300 years um, since King Solomon, mm-hmm. 300 years since the temple's been built, and we are 100 years before the Babylonian captivity, maybe 150, depending on, because he lived for a long time, so whether we're talking about his birth or his death, 100 to 150 years before Babylon, before the southern tribes are taken captive. So it's this last blessed time of the tribe of the tribes that are living in the southern kingdoms, Judah, Benjamin, and any other righteous who want to be around the temple. And this is why I believe Lehi's family from Manasseh and Ephraim and um, Lehi and um, who's his brother and who's all the wives? Oh, Ishmael. Ishmael. Yeah, Ishmael. Ishmael. Yeah. yeah. So they're living down there as well as many, many others. You know, it was during the time of Solomon, they said you could live wherever you want. So those that wanted to live near the temple were there. And that's one reason why we have such beautiful temple symbolism. But we also get immediately a beautiful symbol of our Savior's birth. Can you read chapter one, verse three for me? Uh, chapter one, verse three in Isaiah. Um, the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. That is the first um, message that is used um, to prophesy of the Savior's birth. Because even those stubborn and dumb animals know their owner. But the Israelites did not recognize that little babe born in the cave in Bethlehem, in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And so the earliest creches that we can find, the earliest nativity scenes in Christianity are just three things. The ox, the donkey, and the babe in the manger. And it, they're testifying of this. You see them in places like Ireland in 400 and um, Rome in, in 300. And anyway, they're just beautiful artwork from the very first signs of our Savior. But I hope we are not these dumb animals that we can recognize <laughs> not only our Savior in the crib, but also far beyond there. But you can see that Isaiah is written at least on two or three levels. Um, That verse obviously would not only refer to the Savior's birth. It fits very, very well into Isaiah's time. And he's begging the people of Israel to repent and change. They're a sinful nation. Look at verse 4. People laden with iniquity. You know, a seed of evildoers. But verse 4 also has the first reference to his favorite title for the Lord. And we forgot to talk about that. Isaiah. So the rest of the Old Testament, you know, mentions the name of the Lord, sometimes once a chapter, sometimes not at all if you're in the book of Esther, you know, very infrequently. But when we get to the book of Isaiah, it's 1.9 times every verse. We'll find a name of the Lord. And in the Book of Mormon, it's 1.6 throughout the entire book. So the Book of Mormon really testifies of our Savior, our Creator, the Redeemer of the world. But here in verse 4, Isaiah uses this title that he repeats at least 20 times. I've, I've counted 26. Some people say there's even 30, and I just must have missed some. But he, say, he says, the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel. It's such a beautiful title of our, of our Savior that becomes um, a key word for Isaiah. 
The other thing that I just cherish about Isaiah 1, I think it would be fun just to have a classroom and just have everybody prepare something, of the, one favorite verse in, in each chapter, and I think I'd have to choose Isaiah 118 for mine. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. First of all, the poetry and the parallelisms. And it's, it's almost like he's rhyming ideas rather than rhyming words. Anyway, just exquisite. And um, this, this worm, these animals that make this red. Now, of course, I guess they could use also for scarlet, they could use a pomegranate, but they also use these shells, these tiny little snail shells, things um, that are similar to the ones they use for purple and blue. But this scarlet dye is so hard to get out. If you're going to spill wine or you're going to spill your pomegranates on something, it's so hard to get out, you know. And um, the message that our Messiah's atoning sacrifice will be able to cleanse even the hardest, even something that's color fast, you know, the stain, um, it will be able to be cleansed and purified and I also love the imagery of the fact that he's referring to um, wolf because then, of course, we have the Lamb of God again. And we also have um, the imagery of the temple, the high priest clothing. Um, many of those were out of linen, but in the wintertime, later on, the high priest wore white wool. Anyway, just beautiful images um, of our Savior there in Isaiah chapter 1, 18. Do you have any other favorites in yeah, that chapter? Yeah, immediate verse after. Um, if you be willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. I immediately think of Nephi. I mean, that's one of his favorite mm. phrases, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If you keep the commandments, you shall prosper. And that was a prophecy mm -hmm. given to him right after one of his more meaningful visions, right at the very beginning, when he's praying to know if, if it's the right thing that what his dad is doing, right? And he has this wonderful vision, which at that point really distinguishes him from his brothers, right? Who were believers, you know, um, in, in a way. You could, no, you they could came. say they were, yeah, they came, they came and yeah. they showed up and they were stubborn about it. You know, we'll, we'll mention them <laughs> Just, arguably in verse three. Unfortunately, we can all that, see right? ourselves in all three people sometimes, or four or four brothers at least. <laughs> so I, I love that, you know, let us reason together. This, These two verses just together mm -hmm. right here, I see mm -hmm. this in Nephi's life. So mm -hmm. I, I understand this a little bit better. Yeah. Why he loved Isaiah so much. I, I, I so appreciate the Lord talking to him. Let us reason together as a man talks to a man. You know, I, yeah. I am a God, but come on, let's. Uh, this, this verse um, has been Are you the on 19 thing. Still? I'm on 18, but 18. come now let us reason together. You know, your favorite part right there. That has absolutely been something that has echoed in my mind. Are you in chapter 118? Yeah. Chapter 118. Come now let us reason together, saith oh, the Lord. thank right? you. Yeah. So. That has absolutely been something that the spirits whispered to me from time to time again when I'm just like, how do I understand the Lord? And yeah, you can reason together and you can sort this out and he can teach you how to understand the spirit. That's really you know, beautiful, Combined John. with doctrine and covenants. Um, I mean, these, these types of things absolutely have helped guide me. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Section six, use your heart and your mind. Yeah. Let's use both. Yeah. That's beautiful. And unfortunately, the chapter ends with him, with the Lord being so mad, he... He refers to Jerusalem as Sodom yeah, and goes right into then the second coming in chapter two. And this is so meaningful to parts of the restoration because as Judah is destroyed, we see these parallels in the last day. But 
it just means so much to those of us who believe that a mountain is a temple. Do you, do you want to start in Isaiah 2, starting in verse 2, and let's just go through some of this beautiful imageries of what's going to happen in the last days to prepare for the Lord's second coming. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will come out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. No, I know Zion has lots of meanings. We think of Zion as, as the pure in heart, as a location of Enoch City, as Melchizedek City, as hopefully a city one day in Missouri. Uh, but um, here I feel like Jerusalem is taking on other locations as well. In addition to the new Jerusalem and the old world Jerusalem, it's here um, a place where the prophets and the temples are. And we can see that spreading across the world now and our prophets and our leaders and our savior and the spirit of the Lord are calling us saying, come, let us go up to the mountain. And now that they're reopened, may we go more often. May we make it a priority in our lives. I just think this is such a powerful prophecy of, and maybe it's not as clear to other people, but everyone I think who studies the Bible realizes that mountains are places where sacred things happen and that when God wants to reveal himself, he will come to mountains. And so it's a very natural tendency to see that overlap between mountains and temples in our, in our day. Am I reading too much into it? You no, think that's okay? I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm just thinking about this, you know, because Isaiah and Nephi talks about this, it's hard to understand for the people then, but for us, it's very Clear. Well, especially with Joseph Smith's prophecies, because he tells us that during the millennium, we're going to have these co-capitals, Jerusalem in the old world and Zion in the new world. And so when the word of the Lord is coming out and he's going to be teaching us of his ways, it, it can be a millennial setting here in verse three, um, according to what well, I, I we learned from the prophet. Yeah, I just think of verse two and, you know, we think of, you know, the temples here uh, in Utah and the tops of the mountains, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Oakland. I in live Oakland. in Oakland. Yeah, Ours exactly. is on the top of my mountain. <laughs> yeah, and, and all these places that are built on the hill and all nations shall flow into it. I mean, just thinking of that, you know, 40 years ago compared to today. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so here, yeah. look at this. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but, the numbers are such a gift. Our, the Lord has really been wanting us to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. And I also feel like we have to have more temple attendance in order to be able to maintain the spirit of the Lord during this time of increased wickedness in the world yeah. and to keep our bearings straight, to keep our focus and our conversations focused on where they should. But verse four, I just absolutely love this no desire to hurt or harm and this lack of war during the time yeah. of the millennium. Do you, want to, do you want to read that one? Yeah. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that going to be fabulous? We yeah. can use all of our energies on feeding and cult nurturing rather than on fighting. Yeah. Happy, happy day. Um, you know, 
we have a um, Joseph also talking about Zion in the context of North and South America sometimes. Mm. And then mm. he talks about it any place where the saints are. That was in a Nauvoo sermon um, where he said, you know, physically there can be a Zion, but there's a spiritual Zion. And when the saints are gathered there, we can have that as our Zion society. It was very important, of course, the Nauvoo saints, because I think they wanted to go back to Missouri. And that's right. why the Lord was saying, you know, it, let's let's work on creating a spiritual Zion first. I think we need that before we can do the physical. And Joseph, this is also really wonderful. Joseph um, published this. I pulled this out of the Times and Seasons from July 15th, 1842. He said, he's talking about the millennial reign, and he's talking about this verse in Isaiah chapter four, or chapter two, verse four. The world has had a fair trial for 6,000 years, and the Lord will try the 7,000 years himself. And when he comes, of course, um, it works. When he is with us, it will work. Yeah, that's going to be a happy time. But unfortunately, we, as we turn to the rest of it, we see the rest of the chapter is on this destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. Right. And I think that's sort of the theme for the next few verses, chapter 2 through, um, through 5. You know, pride cometh before the fall, the daughters of Zion. And, oh, it's it's we're we're in bad shape <laughs> on those other chapters. Do you want to move on to verse three yeah. with all this social and moral chaos? Yeah, I feel chapter, like we can fit right in. Chapter three. Yeah, Isaiah three. Yeah. Um, he's warring against materialism. He lists all those sins. And it's very easy for me as I see this list in, um, what is it? Verse eight and nine of chapter three or something. They, to fill in what he's, Jerusalem has fallen, um, and he goes on and um, describes in all these things that they're doing wrong. And I personally like sometimes other translations to, if my imagination doesn't go far enough or to understand the old English. So I want to just read this one about the women in Zion because sure. uh, obviously What's the they... What's verse for this? So I'm chapter three, verse 16. Okay. And here's the NIV. The women of Zion are haughty walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. And therefore, the Lord will bring sores on their heads. And women of Zion, the Lord will make their scalps bald. You know, and in the ancient world, at least in the Judaic ancient world, um, a woman who was... Um, married or a virgin would always keep her head covered. And if it weren't, it meant she was a, a prostitute. And um, here he's saying, you don't even get hair. You've already prostituted yourself from me. You've broken my covenant. And, you know, this this ornaments jingling on their ankles. I, I did not know this, but Anne Madsen teaches that um, women actually wore ankle um, bells so that their husbands would know where they were and that their fathers, if they were children, would be able to hear where they were and they'd know what they were up to. So I, I haven't been able to get that um, authenticated firsthand, but um, that was an interesting touch to there. And we certainly wear a lot more than just jinglings now. <laughs> it's it's a tragic um, parallelism to see this warning against materialism, the cars and the warfare and the idolatry our idolatry is so different. You know, I don't ever think of my phone being an idol, but oh, it can become a horrific idol as we spend time um, in the wrong places. 
Do you have a favorite mm. verse in three? Three is pretty depressing. Okay, let's move on to four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know though. I I, I like the um, the idea. It, instead of a sweet smell, there shall be stink. Yeah. And instead of a girdle, a rent. You know. So instead of a nice tight um, outfit, you're going to be torn. Your clothes are going to be a part. I, I, yeah, I do want to say something uh, on on that idea that you know. Um, I guess the modern parallel, you know, hedonism, right? Oh, definitely. Is, 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 is largely what we call it. And um, there's so many people that build their lives around these materialism, materialism and these ideas because um, I guess there's, it just draws the distinction for me between pleasure and joy, right? Uh, um, and it has its place. I mean, they're gifts, but when they're out of priority and that becomes your idol, it, it destroys you. Well, and I just have to go back to Satan. Um, this is from Hugh Nibley. Satan's first article of false faith, you can get anything in this world for money. Yeah. And um, that's the antithesis, you know, of a Zion society. A Zion society is that we share and share alike, that we all are working together for the common good and that we are trying to um, build Zion. And that is not what's happening here. This burning instead of beauty Um the sackcloth is so uncomfortable. You know, this camel's hair is like wearing something that's going to scratch you night and day. Um, just really a tragic um, situation as the destruction of Jerusalem is going to come. And I believe it it's typifies the last days as, as well. As we move on, though, to chapter 4, we get this branch of the Lord that's going to come to Zion. And I love the fact that they use the imagery. My favorite verse um, is where we have the cloud coming again, cloud by day, going back to that beautiful imagery that the Lord is going to overshadow us and give us the shade that we need and will bless those who rely on him and he, who follow his direction. And I just keep going back to section 130. If we want a blessing, just live the law. Just everything's consequential relationships. So if you want something, just do what the Lord's asked you to do and, and it'll come to pass. Whether now or later doesn't really matter because time is insignificant to the Lord. I love verse four in chapter four. Um, I thought you were going to love seven women shall clean to one man, John. <laughs> I, I thought that's where you were going. I was like, hey, I'm looking for my seven women here. Yeah. <laughs> Just need one. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Go ahead to verse four. Um, but in verse four, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So I, I see, of course. A cleansing. Yeah, cleansing with the blood of the atonement. Mm. Um you know, the symbolism from the temple, you know, marrying the messianic prophecies. Mm -hmm. But what I love about this one is also the spirit of burning, which, you know, the, the coming of the Holy Ghost, this is how you get out of this sort of hedonistic treadmill, right? Is through the spirit. That's where the cleansing comes from. And that has absolutely been happening in my life. Now, all of us are, all of us are prone to, you know, chasing the comforts of life, right? Um, and, and again, like, I, believe, I do believe they have their place, but when they become your idol, it's different. And the cure for that is to be spiritually minded and to spend time in the temple and to spend That's time in the scriptures. Yeah. Seek the Lord for our refuge, verse six, yeah. But chapter five is such an exciting one for me because Jacob chapter five, Isaiah five and Jacob five both have this song of the vineyard. And the parable is so similar to the ideas in Zen Zenus's allegory 
um, that it's just exciting to me to see this. But then whenever I look at the New Testament, I also see parables that deal with the vineyard. I I think this is not just in Zenos, but Zenos is in the brass plates. So it was available possibly to Isaiah as well. Um, I don't know what time Zenos was serving, but it was before Lehi. We know that. And Isaiah is before Lehi. So, so we're not sure. So this is verse two, right? We're looking at in the yeah, day of chapter the branch five, of the Lord. And then, and, oh no, I'm doing chapter five. Oh, I moved ahead. Five, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Chapter five, um, Isaiah chapter five, rem- paralleling with. With the vineyard. The vineyard. So and, we don't know if Zenos was before or after Isaiah. So we don't know who's quoting. But we or, know that Zenos is in much more detail, you know, dozens or more verses. But this parable is really similar. The olive tree is going to have these shared roots. And the poetry is beautiful as God laments his loss of fruit. You know, uh, this once beautiful land of his people is now going to be desolate. That's um, verses one through seven, just this constant cry. Um, And that's the end of the parable is just that those first seven verses, whereas in Jacob chapter five, it goes on and on and on as we see the second coming. But he does talk about this desolate space then. Do you see verse eight and 10, eight to 10, where he talks about, um, you know, the 10 acres is only going to give you one bath. Yeah. So what you've got there is one barrel of wine. Hmm. A bath is about a barrel of wine or a bushel of grain. So, you know, you're not, you're not getting much at all. A a bath is, they approximate eight and a quarter gallons, but it's 10 acres, you know, and so you're only getting a very, very Very small portion. Yeah. And then an ephod is one tenth of a homer and all that stuff. But it it turns out to be about a bushel of grain by, in other translations that I, that I looked at. Um, But again, it goes back to what you were just talking about in, Earlier chapters here in chapter 5, verse 11 through 17, their priorities and time is being spent on pleasures. And I can't, I, I should start counting how many times drunkenness is mentioned here. Because in the ancient world, you usually just had wine and you usually diluted it quite a bit. But obviously, it is still a problem because drunkenness is mentioned so often. That's why I wonder if he really is just looking at our day. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure they had drunkenness then too. But um, anyway, we, we, we seem to imbibe a lot more than they did to an unhealthy level. Um, and of course, the tragedy, as it describes in, in verse um, 15, 16, and 17, is it's the little lambs who are going to, it's the children, it's the, it's the wee ones who will be affected, have to be raised in waste places, that that the captivity is going to come on all. Anything goes in this world, verse 20, and then look down to 22 again, drunkenness, bribery, 24. Right. This unfair care of the innocent that fits the world. And because no one's obeying God, it sounds like everything's going to be burnt. And that, look at at verse 24 there, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despiseth the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his arm. I want to talk about that stretching forth his arm for just a second before we jump into yeah. the best chapter of all. We might have to just um, spend more time on chapter six, but many times the Lord's stretched out arm is of mercy and gentleness. But in this verse, the stretched out arm is of anger, and it's the Lord of hosts who's doing it. So it's the captain army. of the army. Yeah. And um, it is in in providing justice for the innocent, and it will be disciplining 
you know, he, he's ready to give him a, a hard spanking um, and try to teach him a lesson. So, and then when it says, for after all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still is very interesting because I think of sometimes it says, but the Lord will forgive you and his arms of mercy are stretched out. But in this verse, and I've gone through and counted every time the Lord's hand or arm is stretched out, and it's about 50-50. Some are, um, my anger is not turned away, and I will still discipline you. You will still have to pay for what you have done to um, my people. Anyway, tragic. Let's jump into chapter 6. This is Isaiah's beautiful vision of the throne of God. And, you know, Isaiah is not put together chronologically necessarily, although it is interesting that when the Book of Mormon quotes much of it, we see a little consistency in the order. Um, but it's, many people call this his call to be a prophet. Um, but Joseph Smith saw a vision of the throne also in section 76 and also in section 110, and also, you know, so I don't think it has to be at the beginning of his mission, but it might be, because it does say, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, but we know he has already been serving Isaiah, Uzziah. So I think it's it's later on in his life, but whenever it happens, he's giving us a nice clear date here, and politically, um, you know, he is um, less of a... Um, influence in Uzziah's day than he was in Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah's. So at least we have more evidence of it in the text, it appears. But um, I feel like some people have suggested that Isaiah might be a priest. He might be from the tribe of Levi because he knows the temple from this. Although I think of um, visions of the heavenly temple because the heavenly temple is to typify or to be patterned after um, or there are earthly temples are patterned after our heavenly temples. And so I assume that what this means is he is seeing the Lord's temple, but it doesn't necessarily mean he was a priest. It could be. He, he may have known what the Holy of Holies looked like, but that means he would have had to been the high priest. Anyway, for we, we don't know where he stood on in Jerusalem in the temple um, worship and rituals there. But in the temple of Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies represents the Lord's throne. And we see this beautiful throne theophany. And sometimes the language is a little bit tricky. We almost have to think of um, when we saw the Lord on his throne, lifted up high, his train filling the temple. You know, think of a bridal train filling the cathedral or something. But I love the idea of these flowing robes because anytime we're talking about a temple text, we're talking about the priesthood robes of righteousness. And so um, the Lord's presence is filling the temple. His clothing is filling the temple. He will clothe us with his clothing. Remember the word endow or dude? Endude um, is the Lord clothing or, or not the Lord clothing, but if it's the Lord who's clothing us, then it would be he endued us or endowed us. Um, he's clothing us. And then we see this beautiful image of these angels. And I think this is part of the reason why so much artwork and Christianity and Judaism describes angels with these amazing, gorgeous, swan-like wings is because of these descriptions here of the throne theophany where we see the Lord. And there are so many people that see the Lord in the Old Testament. I, I counted up at least eight, um, Ezekiel, Moses, um, 
Job. And as we discussed um, in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, Joseph Smith gave answers to some of these. In section 77, we're so blessed to have, when Joseph was going through the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, he asked, what do the wings represent? And if we can jump between prophets, um, we can use that same explanation. Section 77, verse 4, says that the wings represent the power to move or act. So if these are over his face and his feet and that he's using them to fly, I assume that it means his eyes have a greater power to see and his feet have a greater power to move forward. If it, if it represents a power to act, I just feel like these are symbolic because when Joseph saw his myriads of angels, um, and many times when other people see angels, they're described as a man, um, or they, that he looked like an, a man. So this is really a beautiful imagery of what an angel has, their capabilities are to see and go and do. The angels are always praising the Lord, which I just love in verse three. And they're repeating them three times, which is not only emphasis for being holy, but any times you have three calls from the temple wall um, preceding the Lord, it should exude some thoughts from the temple of being called three times before we enter the Lord's presence. Um, you know, I had to go back to the book of Psalms for verse four. Do you see there where it talks about the um, smoke is filling the temple? The, yeah. In the book of Psalms, it says um, the incense that is being lit in the temple represents the prayers that are constantly ascending to heaven. And so the smoke coming from either the altar or the incense altar are going to be representing the atoning sacrifice of our Lord or the prayers coming up before the Lord. But the smoke would have been very much a part of inside the holy place and inside um, the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement when they bring incense into that room as well. But we also have the smoke coming from the altar itself. So from the atoning vicarious sacrifice. And also verse four talks about that doorway and the sill. And I, I love this idea of an entrance into the presence of the Lord that is filled with, um, we can only enter because of that atoning sacrifice. And we can only enter through prayer the spirit of the Lord that will accompany them there in verse four. The door and the seal also reminds me of the Passover when you have to cover it with the blood of the lamb, that the only way we can enter into the presence of the Lord is going through that blood of the lamb. And that that blood of the lamb is protecting. The next image, I just, don't you love verse five with the image of let's get a coal from the place of atonement and, and clean out my mouth. You know, Isaiah is this great, wonderful man and yet he's, he's so humbled in the presence of our God and he recognizes his, his mortality. And I just, so many times during the sacrament, I've, I've asked the Lord to take a coal from his incense altar or from his altar and, and cleanse my mouth. Um, and I, I love the fact that he's asking him to cleanse his mouth. And do you remember when Paul says, it doesn't matter what you put in your mouth. It matters what you put out of your mouth. Right. And, um, you know, it's our mouth that does such good and such damage. And, you know, we just need to be cleansed. And then hopefully our thoughts can go from then, from thence and cleanse our hearts um, so that we can see as God sees. But that's, I love that image of the altar and the cleansing. And then verse eight, 
This is all of us right here as we stand with Isaiah. And when the Lord calls, we need to say, here am I. That's the same phrase that was used um, by Christ in the premortal existence, according to the book of Abraham. Do you remember that in chapter three of Abraham? I think it's verse 27 or something around there. I like this because you you have this image which we've been talking about of purification. You know, I, I again, I, I come back to Nephi. He has the same kind of experience. And then immediately after that, you know, when his iniquity is taken away, he feels this gratitude for the atonement in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he's prepared to serve. And then he says, send me, you know, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. And it doesn't matter where I get called as long as I can be called, you know, as long as I can serve you. And I think there's a real difficulty in our generation where we don't have a servant, slave, master, authoritarian society to feel how strongly that connection should be as we serve God. Hmm. But I think it's helpful to put ourselves in the position of a servant in the Middle Ages and say, I will serve you as they served their masters. Right. You know, I voluntarily come before you and I want to be your servant. I found another translation of verse 10 that I'd love to read. This one's yeah. um, the NAS, the New American Standard. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, unless they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Sometimes this is seen as, um, from the Calvinistic interpretation, the way it's translated sounds as if the Lord wants Isaiah to make the people so they cannot hear because he doesn't want to save them. But it's very helpful to read um, it in the eyes of the restoration where we realize um, Isaiah is being warned that his message will fall on deaf ears and dim eyes. Um, And there are times, though, when the Lord will bless a people by not allowing them to understand everything so that they are not going to be held as accountable and that they will have another opportunity to learn the gospel. So I I do think it can be interpreted both ways, but um, it's it's tricky sometimes um, because parables are supposed to be deliberately difficult. I think the Lord wants us to sit down and think, saying, is that right? And that's where prayer comes in. We have to stop and pause and wait and think and ponder and the Lord will teach us. But the good news is in verse 13, that remnant will return. And I think this is one reason why Second Nephi quotes this chapter is because it's referring to that remnant. And they are one of the many remnants who will return from Isaiah, I mean, from Israel, that those seeds will come back. And it's called one-tenth, but I think um, a portion can be not necessarily exactly 10% because of a portion will return. That is um, only halfway through this section, but I think I've I've talked a little bit too long today. Did you want to touch on anything else in this I, week's Come Follow Me? I do. Chapter 11 stood out to me as well. I mean, obviously, we, we spent all our time just on the first few chapters, um, and our, our listeners probably should spend a lot of time in these first few chapters. But 11 stood out to me because of the clarity. Uh, I just remember... Of our Savior. Yeah, absolutely. The prophecy of the, Jesus coming the from Jesse. The Jesse, of course, was David's um, line there. Yeah. And so so for me, just reading these verses, paying special attention to chapter 11 again, uh, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is verse mm. two. Uh, mm. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit That's of knowledge uh, uh, and fear of the Lord. 
It shall make him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he fear not, meaning reverence yeah. and honor. Yeah. yeah. And so, so what stood out to me in this rereading was these different, this idea of, this, of the spirit, this, this mentality, this, um, it's very obviously very difficult to describe this, but you you know it when you feel it. Mm-hmm. That he has all these different blessings of understanding, um, and then in verse four, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek. Just this, all of these different uh, types so of understanding, grateful. just make him such a great to have judge. Jesus as yeah. our advocate. We're so bad at it. Just personally, we're so bad at judging the poor. Like, oh, this is your fault, right? Mm-hmm. Or this is not your fault. Like, you know, let, let's help and maybe uh, not holding them accountable. Um, and so we're just bad at it, right? Mm-hmm. But he's so good. Um, and he absolutely sets the standard that, that we've been living with, you know, in and we flip law. from this first coming of the Lord's birth through the yeah. line of David into his second coming in verse six, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb yeah, and the Th- leopard is, shall lie down with the kid. This is the fruit of that. I yes. think that's what mm-hmm. I see mm-hmm. that we we're not at each other's throats anymore, which we mm-hmm. seem to be nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, I look forward to that day with you. Yeah. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye.